Father, right now as we take time and sit back and calm our hearts, I pray that you would give us the grace to sit here in this space right now and to focus on you, Father. Everything that we do in our world, every place that we go, every conversation that we get involved with, every event that takes place in our lives, it's so easy for us to see those, Lord, and to reflect those back on us, to think about how we dealt with it or what we're going to do, or plans that we have. We have a tendency to focus so much on ourselves, and I pray that right now, as we get ready to engage in your word, that you would give us the grace to focus on you, to hear from you, to be reminded of the fact that there is something outside of us, there is something outside of ourselves, that is the key to our hope and our fulfillment, and that is you, Father. So we pray that that would be clear as we dive into your word, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, one thing that I've come to know here in the past few weeks that's really hit home in a way that it hasn't in my life before is that life is and can be incredibly hard. For all of us. Right? There's times where we can step back and look at somebody and think their life is easy. But one thing that you find out is if you ask anybody if their life is easy, they're going to say no, regardless of what they have. Life is hard, and it's hard for all of us, and there are times in our lives where things become incredibly hard. And it's hard not just because of what folks outside do to us, or things outside that take place in us, it's it's hard on us, oftentimes because of us. That we're surrounded by how hard life can be. And when I say surrounded, let's think of it in terms of time, past, present, future. The past is this. One thing that I know about all of us in this room that we all have in common as it relates to the past is that we all have one. We've all done things that we shouldn't have done. We all have these things called secrets, ways that we messed up, things that we thought that we could take to the grave with us. And we live in a world where our acceptance largely is based on how well do you keep the bad secrets. Think about the last time you went and tried to get a job and they asked you what your weaknesses were. What you didn't say was, I'm chronically late, I'm not very hard I really don't even want this job. I just have to pay for my bills. (laughs) You know, if you're going to be accepted, there's something about your past that you have to withhold. And so here's what that does for us. It introduces this fear that we all have. And it's this fear of being exposed. It's this fear of one day somebody whom I've worked so hard to get their acceptance will find out what I'm really like on the inside. And if they do in that day, my world is going to be crumbling. We all have a past. Acceptance has been based on how well we keep things that are wrong in our past from the people that we want to be accepted by. 
And this fear of exposure never goes away because a secret may lay dormant for years, but one day it's going to come out. And that applies to everybody. From MLK to Josh Duggar, as we've seen here in this past week, we all have things in our past that come up and they can expose us. If that's not hard enough, what takes place is even if we try to forget the past and the things that we've done wrong and we say that we're going to start over, what the mistakes in our past have done is presently they introduce something into our life that's called guilt and shame. And we sit with this sense of, man, I said that I would never cross this line, but I crossed it. I said I'd never do this again, but I didn't. And though actions take place in an instant, Guilt lingers on and on. Guilt makes a terrible roommate because it never knows when to leave. It stays. You can't force it out. The best that you can do at times is try to mask your guilt. But when you try to mask your guilt, this is what lies at the heart of any and every addiction. I feel guilty. I've got to do something to take my mind off of this guilt. And if it works, then that's what I go to to get rid of my guilt. It could be drugs, it could be money, it could be buying things. We all have guilt that doesn't leave because we know that we've crossed lines that we shouldn't have. So our past is troubled. Our present is full of guilt. And then as we look to our future, it seems like that there's hope because it seems bright. And we can say, this is the last time. Next time, that's not going to take place. We look to the future and it seems so bright until we get there. And then we find out that it's not as bright as we thought that it would be. Raise your hand right now is if life, if life for you is exactly how you thought it would be and hoped it would be at this point five years ago. Look around, it's great to be in a room with people that are as miserable as you are. <laughs> what you know as well as I do is that whatever promises we make are inconsistent at best. There's no hope for us as we look to what we've done in the past. Right now, we can still feel the guilt of things that we've done wrong. And though we may sit back and hope for the future, when it gets there, like it is right now, we've seen that it's not how we hoped that it would be. But you go out and ask for advice, and the world tells you, try harder. Do better. Get yourself together. Look for the solution to your problems inside. But we know that that's foolish. It would be like somebody saying to you, I'm hungry. And you say, well, just look inside of yourself. They say, that's the problem. God gives us hunger to introduce us into a spiritual reality. And that truth is this. There is no hope for fulfillment if we look for it inside of ourselves. 
We have to look, we have to get something from outside implanted in here if things in here will ever be better. So if you found yourself in a place where you're frustrated, where you're defeated, where you're filled with guilt, where you're fearful of what the future may hold, and you don't know where to go and or what to turn to, we're glad that you're here. We want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. And that's where we're going to be um, for these next 12 weeks. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 1 and 2, let's start here. I'll read some and explain. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What takes here is the very first thing we're introduced to is a guy by the name of Paul. Like Pastor Tripp said last year, Paul is a man with a checkered and a troubled past. He's done lots of things that he's ashamed of, lots of things that should fill him with guilt. When Christianity was first starting to blow up, Paul was the biggest advocate to try to shut it down. And here God is going to use him to write his word. Now in a room this size, we don't want to take anything for granted. As we come and approach God's word, and as I introduced it and said the man wrote God's word, you may say, well, how can both of those things be the, the case? I don't trust the Bible because it's just a word for man. It's not really God's word. Well, it's both. Sometimes I think that it's, help, it's helpful if we think of it like this. Think of a stencil. Think of an artist that carves out this beautiful stencil and gives it to a three-year-old. Somebody who doesn't have the ability to do what he did and tells him to write it. He can write on it and do all of this stuff. And when the stencil is picked up and you and I see a beautiful picture and we would say, who's responsible for this? Well, they both can say that they are. Right? So, so when we come to God's Word and there's people that actually wrote God's Word, it was God that is responsible for His Word, but in the same way it's Paul and God will use His effort and strength and gifts. So just because it's written by man doesn't mean that it's any, any less of God's Word. It just shows the amazing things that God can do through sinful people like you and I. And so Paul writes this. And the most amazing thing about this book is if you go through books of the New Testament, you'll see lots of stuff made about Christ and his death and his burial. This book, the book of Ephesians, is not a book about the sad things or the things that should make us feel bad about ourselves. This is a book about the victory that we have in Christ. This is a book that's victorious, that talks more about the fact that Christ is raised and what we get as a result of the fact that he died than that he died. And the most amazing part about all of this is that Paul is writing this book about victorious Christian living from the bottom of a prison cell. So as you and I want to know, and where do we go to for joy when it seems like I've looked inside and I've seen that I'm bankrupt and I need some help? 
Paul is not just the man that knows where to find it. He's somebody that has it. He's somebody that has it in open, and he's in a worse place than you and I are in right now. Verse 3, Paul says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. This verse right here is really going to lay out the thesis or the umbrella which um, uh, where we're going to get an answer to our question. Where do we go to? Where do we look for, for hope if we're not going to find it inside? The very first thing that Paul does is he says, listen, praise be to God for the fact that he's blessed us. He's provided us with all these spiritual blessings. And he points us to where it is that we should look. If you're looking for joy, don't look inside. You're not going to find it there. Look in Christ. If you're looking for joy, don't look inside. Look in Christ. This is the point that he's going to make. And he's going to show us just how God has blessed us. And how that impacts the way that we view our past, our present, and our future. The knowledge of God, like Trippett said at the front of this, is meant to produce praise towards God. A heart that praises God, praise is the reflex of the soul that really knows God. And so Paul starts off and he says, praise be to God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's enough to bring him comfort. And you and I hear that and we're like, that's great that I have all these spiritual blessings. But last time I checked, Georgia Power doesn't take spiritual blessings. I called, Sally May says, they'll take spiritual blessings, but they're going to need a check or a credit card if I'm going to pay off the rest of my loans. Spiritual blessings, they seem kind of great or grand as we read it, but when we bump up into life, we feel like, I need something that I can hold on to. I need something that I can touch, something that I can feel, something that I can spend. Why does this bring comfort to Paul? So why should it bring comfort to our soul? And it should bring it because this. Spiritual blessings are the things that you really want when all of your earthly blessings come to an end. Not if, but when. They will. Go to a funeral and what you'll see is people that have all types of money and what they'll say is things like, I would trade it all for dot, dot, dot. Spiritual blessings, those are the things that we want when life gets really, really hard and we see the true value of all of the things that we want that really don't do us any good. That when we fail to worship God, it's not because of a lack of goodness on His part. Often it's because of a lack of knowledge on our part. We don't know and really grasp all of the great things that He's done for us in Christ. And so as we sit and read the rest of this text, Paul's not going to say anything about you and I. He's saying, get your eyes off of yourself. That's the problem. Look to God. That the Bible is not a mirror 
that's meant for you just to see your reflection, but the Bible is a window through which we can see what God is like. So as we come to God's Word, we want to read it with that end. What is this God like? What are these blessings that are supposed to bring me comfort? And what Paul's going to do is he's going to address these things in the past, in the present, and in the future. And the very first point is this. Verse 4. Right, praise be to God. God our God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. As we look to our past, we're driven to despair because we see all the things that are done wrong. So as Paul calls us to reflect on our past, Paul said the problem is, is you're trying to find joy inside. That's why when you think about the past, you think about the past as it relates to you. What he says here is, your problem is, you didn't look far enough into the past. Look further past your actions. Look at God. And he's saying, in eternity past. Listen, before you did anything good or bad, God chose you. God knew you. Which means this: when it comes to God, we don't have the same fear of exposure because God already knows. In college, um, I... Uh, I upgraded my car. I had a station wagon that, that was my dad's. Um, and I came home in the fall and I felt like, all right, I need to get a better car. So I go on, uh, not online, I go to a newspaper at the time. Um, and I look for a car and I get a Mazda 626. I check things out. The AC works on, on the inside. I'm like, man, it's, it's, it's great. So I buy the car and I go back off to school. Well, I drive back home that break, and it's really, really cold outside. So I turn on the heat. And on the three-hour drive back home, I couldn't get the heat to work. So I go to a mechanic, and I ask him what's wrong, and he pops the hood, and he says, well, what's wrong is you don't have a heating cord. There's no way that you can get heat in this car. Uh, the person that sold you the car probably knew that they didn't have one, and that's why they sold it to you for the price that they did. And so at this point, I'm frustrated because here, I chose this car that I thought was good, and now as soon as I pop the hood, I find out that it's not what I hoped that it would be, and so what I want to do is I want to give it back. I want to be done with it. What the Bible says here is, look, God didn't choose you like that. God knew what was under the hood before He chose you. Which means this, that you don't have to be holy to be chosen by God. That the crushing blow of, I've done too much, I've gone too far, the, the, the way that that is, the answer that God provides is it doesn't matter because I chose you before you could do anything good or bad. Your works are inconsequential. 
God didn't choose you because you were holy. God didn't choose me because I was holy. Look at here in verse 4. It says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of, of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. God chose us to make us something. God chose us knowing full well what was messed up under our hood and He chose us so that He could repair what was under our hood and set us on the right track. There is no fear of exposure when it comes to God. It gives us great freedom that as we sit and approach God, we don't have to hide our sin or our faults or the ways that we mess up though the rest of the world may reject us when they find out what's wrong with us. God is not disillusioned in the same way. He's never trying to make an exchange. He doesn't come at you with regret. God is never surprised. As we look to the past, we look not to our work, but to God's work. God shows us in order to make us holy. And how does He do that? Look here at verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glory and grace which He's freely given us in the one He loves. God doesn't bring us close just because He tolerates us. God looks at those of us that have a lot of things wrong with us that we've done in the past and what He says is I'm not just going to bring you into my house as an employee. I want to make you family. Christianity, it's a relational religion. It's about God bringing people that are foes into his family. Listen, and not just into his family the way that um, we do when we have kids of our own and we have an obligation towards them, but the language that it uses is adoption, which means this. God brings people into his family that he has absolutely no obligation to. It's one thing if you have kids of your own and you leave or they leave and they're young. Then what takes place is that somebody will have to pay child support because that's your kid. That's your responsibility. But it's amazing that God who already had a son of his own that was perfect, said, I'm going to come in and I'm going to choose folks, not just to come in and to work for me, but to be a part of my family. This God who chose us before the foundation of the world, and some may ask, well, well, if God knew that sin was going to take place, right, why did God put the tree in the garden? Why did God let us sin? It's in order that he could do this. That if God just took care of all of us and we had an obligation to Him for His stuff, there's an amount of glory that's seen in that. But what takes place when you and I sin and live lives that should earn God's judgment and punishment, and we run, and this God 
says, no, 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 no. I don't just want the ones that are mine. I want those that aren't mine. And he brings in people that he has no responsibility for. That's amazing. You and I have family that when they find out the worst part about us, they don't want to have anything to do with us. God knew the worst thing about us beforehand, and he still chose to come in and to bring us and to make us family. Your fear of rejection and exposure is unwarranted because God, who knew the worst about us, chose us in order that he would bring us in. And what that gives us is a great boldness in our speech, a great boldness in the way that we pray. It's a dignity that we have because God has made us his. Lest we get prideful at the fact, well, God chose me. God made me his. What Paul does is he helps us see, wait, wait, wait. Look at what God had to do to make you his. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and, un un and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. God deals with our fear of the past by saying, I chose you before you could do anything. But look at what God does with the guilt that we have in the present. Could God forgive somebody like me? God says that he has, but the way that he's done that is through the blood of Christ. The way that he's done this is through forgiveness of sins. Listen, when we come into this world, it's as if God gives us a pen and every action that we do is permanent. Have you ever tried to erase something with a pen? It doesn't work. It just makes more of a mess. Right? That's like you and I trying to erase our past with future acts of obedience. You can't do it. Future obedience does not cancel past debts. So we can sit here and say, I won't do. I'll do better. That's good. But there's still this debt that can't be canceled. There's still this past that you and I have. What's done is done. Deny it all you want. It's there. But there was one person who never made the mistakes in the past that we did. There's one person who as they sit and as they live their lives, they never had this feeling of guilt or shame as a result of a mistake that they made. There was one person that was perfect, and that was God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of all of what we see here. All of the great things that God does for us, we only get them if we're in Christ. So the best way that I can explain it is like this in Christ, it's a strange term. Think of it in terms of geography, right? So say it's December and you live in Chicago. There's things that you have to put up with. 
this snow that you have to shovel, this cold that you have to deal with. There are frustrations and inconveniences that take place because you are in a place where things are really, really cold. But what if I told you about a glorious land called Texas? <laughs> listen, listen. No, no. In Texas, we don't know what snow is. In Texas, we don't wear snow boots. In Texas, we don't have to shovel. We we don't have to shovel snow. In Texas, we don't have to change out our tires. In Texas, we don't need space heaters because it's 85 degrees on Christmas Eve. <laughs> so when Paul says, listen, we've been forgiven in Christ, what Paul's saying is, in this world, you have to deal with the guilt of your sin. It's there. You can't change it. You cannot erase it. Oh, but in Christ, for those of us that are in Christ, there is no such thing as guilt. In Christ, there is no condemnation. In Christ, there's no punishment. In Christ, there's no shame. Why? Because when I'm in Christ, it's as if God took my life and all of my faults and placed them in His life. So when He looks at my past, He sees Christ's past. Past. When he looks at my present and what goes on right now, he sees Jesus. And when he looks at my future, he sees him. So now at the end of the day, this guilt that I feel right now because I just can't do it right if I'm in Christ, if you're in Christ, you don't have to be. And not only do you not have to deal with that, but God provides forgiveness to us. In accordance with his riches, which means this, they never run out. Forgiveness is never withheld. There is never a time when we come to God with confession and repentance that he says, I'm spent. There is no line that you can cross which God's grace has not already been and pulled back somebody that's worse than you and made him a part of his family. This is the freedom that we have in Christ, but guilt to just vanish. And this is the hallmark of a Christian. Forgiven people forgive. A person that finds it impossible to forgive somebody, not all, but impossible, is somebody that has a gross misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. What God has done is He's forgiven our sins, every one of them, past, present, and future. For all of us, for all of us sensible sinners who would see that we don't have any hope outside of Him and would turn from our sins and accept this forgiveness that's in Christ. We serve a great God who has blessed us because He chose us for what we did anything. Exposure is not something that we feel. We serve this great God who presently has redeemed us. So if you're three years sober, three months sober, 30 minutes sober, there is no guilt because right now we have 
forgiveness of our sins available. The only one that can erase our past by placing us in Him. That's all there in Christ. Free for the taking. Right now, where you're sitting, guilt can vanish because of what Christ has done for us. And that verse 8 and 9, it just says, God shared this. God made this known to us according to His good pleasure. God was pleased. He was eager to get this word out because He didn't want people to stay away from Him. He wanted them not to stay away because of their past or their present or even their futures. We think of the future. We think, man, it's great what God has done for me back then. It's great what He even did for me right now. But how can I be sure that I'm not going to turn my back on it? How can I be sure that this thing took and I'm going to make it to the finish line? And here's the beauty of what God has done. It says, as we look to the past, we don't look to our work, but to God's. Joy is not found inside. It's found in Christ. God chose us without our help. God saved us without our help. And look here at this last part, verse uh, 11 to 14. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also, listen, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The beautiful part about how all of this ends up is that it said, God selected us for a full reward. God sacrificed for us in Christ. And the Spirit seals us. God's Holy Spirit in the Christian is God's seal or His signature or His mark or His down payment. That the same way that He started this work He's going to be the one that completes this work. That what you do with a down payment is you give somebody cash up front to let them know I'm good for all of the rest. So hold on to this until I get back with the rest of it. And this is what God has done for us. The mark of a Christian, the seal, is this God's Spirit and what God's Spirit does inside of us is He transforms us. He takes people who make it impossible to forgive. Forgive the worst of sinners. He takes those of us that look for peace in hard times and He gives us great comfort. He takes people who had, who had appetites and pursuits of all types of things that God was not pleased with. And He changes the things that they want. And the mark of a Christian 
is this God's nature, what God is like. I see it in me. Somebody that is unlike God. Somebody who has a past. Somebody who still crosses line. I see God's nature in me. And what God sees from afar are those that are marked out. And here's what separates Christianity from every other religion. is that we serve a God who's not telling us what we need to do to get to Him. But we serve a God who's done it all for us and said, I'm coming back to get you. We serve a God we don't have to work for because if we had to work for, we knew that we would fall short, but we serve a God who has picked us, who's made the provision to forgive us of our past, and who's marked us to ensure that all of us that are in Christ, one day God's going to come and complete the work that He started. We serve a God that doesn't do things halfway. He completes it. And as sure as He started a work in all of us that have trusted Christ, God is going to complete that work until one day He gets us back. And Paul says that God picks us, Christ dies for us in this Spirit seals us. Why? For the praise of God's glory. So that people that are far from God would never look towards God and say, a God like you could never want somebody like me. People that have a troubled past can never say, God doesn't pick people with pasts. God only picks people with pasts. Somebody that's weighed down by the guilt of their sin can never say, God cannot pick somebody that's crossed the line that I have. God only picks people that are perpetual line steppers. They could never say, God would never choose somebody as inconsistent as I am. God only chooses people that are inconsistent in order to make them holy. And what we see is that at the end of time, God will stay with all of us and we'll look and we'll praise Him. What an amazing God that can save and change people that are less than amazing. The things that we want the most are never found in ourselves. If we look to ourselves, we're only going to regret our past, lament our present and be fearful of our future. Oh, but if we look to what God did in Christ, then we rejoice in the past. We praise God in the present and we're expected of the future. And that's our aim. That's our hope. That's what we want to do as a church. Our mission as a church is this. We want to faithfully display the greatness of Jesus through the everyday lives of his people. And all that that means is we are not a community of people that say we have it all together. We are a community of folks that will admit that we don't. But God has done something inside of us. He's placed us in Christ. We've repented of our sins. And he's starting to make us more like him. And so our prayer is that as you come, that in this community, 
you would get a chance to see, feel, hear, and touch what it is to be completely known, but completely loved. That you would know what it's like to be in a room full of folks that don't have to hide who they are, but we express who we are so that nobody stays away from Christ. And in that, Christ gets called of the glory. If you're trying to find joy, don't look for it in yourself. You're never going to find it. It's found in Christ, and it's available to all of us. Even now, let's pray. Oh, our great and gracious Father, we praise you because of the great things that you've done. Not because of what we've done. We look at our works. There's reason for, for despair and hope, Lord, but we know that right now we can turn to you, Father. Help us to reflect on you and what you've done for us in Christ. How gracious that you've been. And as we approach you in prayer through this week, I ask that you would give us the grace to come to you in prayer at times and not even ask for a thing, but to reflect on how good and how kind you've been to us in taking those of us that we have opposed and bringing us into your family. We thank you. Thank you. All praises on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.